The 2016 sci-fi film Arrival tells a tale about what someone from a faraway place might have to show us about ourselves and our world. The fabulous Amy Adams stars as Dr. Louise Banks, a renowned linguist and professor. And the movie begins with the sudden appearance of 12 enormous spacecrafts that hover still and silently in random locations across the globe. No, no one knows what to make of them. Some feel awe, many fear, and society is on the brink of chaos and all the confusion. Louise Banks is recruited by the U.S. government to travel to rural Montana with a team that's attempting to communicate with a pair of aliens in one ship to figure out what they are doing here on Earth. If you haven't seen Arrival yet, you should. It's available for streaming on Hulu and may or may not be the only reason I have a Hulu account. <laughs> one scene in particular feels cheesy to describe, but I think is the most beautiful in the movie. Dr. Banks is in the spacecraft with her team, attempting conversation with the floating heptapods, what they've named the aliens. They're in this dark, gravity-defying chamber, wearing protective suits and separated by a thick, transparent wall that keeps the foggy alien atmosphere away from Earth's. The attempts thus far have been futile. Louise and her team have written simple words on a whiteboard, only to receive mysterious ink circles in response. Suddenly, and with a bit of frustration, Dr. Banks takes off her helmet and suit and walks towards the wall. Her whole crew is freaking out. They don't know what's happening, and they're scared. Scared that Dr. Banks might suffocate in the alien air, or that she'll scare the aliens away or into some violent reaction. Chillingly, though, the aliens move closer to Louise. She gently touches her hand to the wall, and then one of the creatures does the same. This is a tipping point in the contact between the two species, and from there, the film continues to unfold why the aliens are here. One of the reasons I love Arrival is because, unlike many alien films, the aliens aren't here to destroy our planet or to eat us for lunch. <laughs> Their coming to Earth turns out to be a compassionate one. They're here to give a gift to humanity and to ask for one in return. In the movie, though, the world's fear almost, hum almost hinders humanity from receiving the alien's gift. Dr. Banks' boldness ends up being the saving grace for the entire encounter. Her willingness to step towards the mysterious beings allowed her to see and share their message, a message that changed the world and the way that humanity understood their very existence. As I was preparing for today's sermon, I couldn't help but draw parallels between the aliens of Arrival and the Magi of Matthew 2, who likewise came from a faraway place, evoking fear and wonder in the people they encountered, and offering gifts of perspective that would change the world. I love the Magi and all of their mysterious and magic, and I'm not alone. While the shepherds in Luke's gospel would win a popularity contest against Matthew's Magi today, if we were to pit the two against each other in any other age of the church, the Magi would totally win. Even though they weren't there when Jesus was born like the shepherds, they showed up a couple years later. This week my friend told me that her mom would always set out the nativity scene in their house with the Magi in another room, because they still had a couple years to get there. Early Christian writings feature the Magi much more than the shepherds, as does early Christian art. It's even believed that the Magi may still be with us physically. 
relics of the Magi, supposed remnants of their bodies that the church has considered sacred, have traveled among the Catholic Church for centuries and exist today in cathedrals in France and Italy. I'm not too interested in going and seeing those, though. Um, and their popularity throughout the ages has given rise to a diversity of stories and ideas about who exactly these Magi were. The word Magi was first used to talk about a special cast of people who had the power to interpret dreams, but over the years it became more generally used for practitioners of occult arts and magic, which were revered sources of knowledge and wisdom in the ancient world. Matthew ties his Magi with the star they see rising in the east, so most people see to, or seem to understand them as astrologers, though their astrology is a bit more complex than the one-line horoscopes you read in Cosmo magazines. Some say that the star of Bethlehem must have been a comet or a supernova, but these would have been seen and recorded by other historians, and there's no such recordings any time near the estimated year that Jesus was born. Biblical scholar Raymond Brown suggests that astrology actually helps us see the most likely occurrence that would have led mystics to Jerusalem and search for a newborn king of the Jews. You have to follow me on this. Between 7 and 6 BCE, there was a rare conjunction or crossing of paths between Jupiter and Saturn, something that any astrologer, ancient or contemporary, would notice. This happened in the constellation of Pisces, which is important not just because I'm a Pisces, but because Pisces was and is associated with the last days, and it has been associated with the Hebrew people. Saturn was also believed to represent the region of Palestine, and Jupiter to represent a great world leader. So, this weird alignment in the sky, unimpressive to any of us as average stargazers, could be interpreted as predicting that there would appear in Palestine among the Hebrew people a world leader of the last days. That would be a sensible prompt for astrologers to travel far in search for a newborn king of the Jews. While connections between stories in the Bible and astrology aren't new, for centuries rabbis have supposed that a similar conjunction may have happened when Moses was born. Raymond Brown admits that this is all a stretch and that we can't for certain know what, if any, historical event Matthew is referencing. Still, I think it's interesting nonetheless. We often sing songs about these magi like we three kings, like we're singing this morning. Three because of the three gifts listed in Matthew's account, but I like to imagine a whole caravan of ancient astrologers strolling into Jerusalem, causing a lot of commotion. But why do we call them kings? It says in Matthew that they had come to pay him homage, which is seen as a subtle reference to a messianic psalm that says, may all kings pay him homage. Just a few centuries after Matthew penned his gospel, most Christians believed that Magi were royalty in Eastern countries. Yet we know now that Magi weren't considered royalty themselves. They were not kings. Instead, they were typically servants of kings, attendants in the royal courts. Apparently, people often held sympathy for the Magi, for they were wise, but their position was similar to that of jesters, except instead of providing jokes, they provided interpretations of dreams and the stars. So while they're respected in Matthew's gospel as an important source of wisdom to the Gentile world, these astrologers did not hold the same powers that kings hold. When I read this passage, I can't help but hear the hush that falls over the city as Herod was frightened and all of Jerusalem with him. When I found out that our wise men were not royalty but were subservient to kings, I see the reason for this hush of fear more clearly. 
I'm sure Herod would have been frightened to hear about a newborn king of the Jews, regardless of whomever was delivering this message, because he, at that time, was the king of the Jews. But I see why the whole city was frightened with them. And it makes me wonder how I would respond had I lived in Jerusalem when the Magi came parading through. See myself sitting in my apartment in midtown Jerusalem, minding my own business on the couch, watching Hulu, petting my cat, drinking LaCroix, when suddenly I hear the racket of something happening out on the street. I'm curious, and I look out the window over Broadway and see a bunch of camels and other animals carrying foods, or food and tents and people with maps of the stars. What would I think? How would I react? Would I be frightened when I open Twitter to see something about hashtag Magi and hashtag newborn king of the Jews all over my newsfeed? What would I think about these strange people from a faraway place arriving unexpectedly with some sign from the stars? When I think about the ancient context of this story, I not only hear the hush of Jerusalem's fright and wonder about my own reaction in the astrologer's presence, but I can't help but see the brilliance of the ancient night sky. In the ancient world, without the light pollution of modern technology, the stars shone brighter in the cities, something that we easily forget about today. It's great when we do get the chance to see the night sky in its fullness. A couple months ago, I had the opportunity to go stargazing in rural Arizona and notice for the first time in years the gas of the Milky Way. I couldn't help but stop thinking about the expanse of the cosmos and how it's always there. We just have to remember to look up. I also remember being in middle school on a family trip to Oklahoma City when I first saw the rings of Saturn. We had gathered with my dad's family at my Uncle Barney's house, and he had recently purchased a big telescope. It's become a defining image that I see when I think of my uncle's house. That night, he had pinpointed the contraption towards Saturn because it was the perfect night for viewing that planet. And one by one, people walked up and peeked through the little looking glass. And one by one, they walked away exclaiming, I could see the rings. Turns out that little speck of light, it's hard to pick out in the night sky, was carrying more detail than we would have imagined based on plain sight. Simply seeing the rings around the planet was enough to evoke a joyful wonder from everyone who saw. But then I'm also reminded about how the telescope has evoked more than joy from people. It, like the Magi in their story of the stars, once frightened an entire society. In 1610, Galileo used his telescope to discover the moons of Jupiter, a discovery that undergird, undergirded his existing suspicion that Copernicus was right and that the Earth was not the center of the cosmos. His discovery of Jupiter's moons is seen now as proof of the Copernican principle. But when he first brought this to the public, he was tried for heresy and eventually spent his last decade under house arrest. The world at that time was not ready for his story of the stars, one that has turned out to be more mysterious than Galileo even suspected. So we know now that our sun, solar system, and even our galaxy are not the middle of the cosmos. But that story of the stars challenged who people thought God to be. As time has shown us, though, it did not ruin the idea of God. The story just got bigger, more beautiful, and even better. We as a species become easily frightened by anything that shakes our worldview or challenges our answers too much. We like to have things figured out. 
And we're frightened by any reminder of how much is out there that we don't understand. We see this in reaction to Galileo and, and the reaction in Jerusalem to the Magi. Today, we live in a world where there is an abundance of information and news that shatters our answers and our worldview on an ongoing basis. Every day, we make new social and scientific discoveries that overturn previous understandings of the world. Think of the expansion of psychology over recent decades, or the development of quantum physics, or the theory of evolution and how it's grown over the past two centuries. These things have not only challenged how we understand ourselves, but how we understand God. We, especially as people of faith, have an important decision to make. Will we default into a position of fear when we come across messages that are mysterious or challenging? Or will we lean into the unknown with open minds and open hearts, yearning for a bigger and more beautiful story of God? Author and speaker Rob Bell says that whatever we say about God always rests within the larger reality of what we can't say. Meaning always resides within a larger mystery. Knowing always takes place within unknowing. This is beautiful, but it's scary. When you really take a moment to let that sink in as you think about the wonder of the world we live in, it can feel like a little much. It can be really frightening. But fortunately, we as Christians have tools with which we can practice finding God on the other side of that fear. This week, as I've been traveling, I've seen various jokes on social media about how time doesn't really feel real right now. We're in that weird week between Christmas and New Year. Some of us are off work. The kids are out of school. We don't know exactly what to do with ourselves. I have good news, though. Christmas is not over. No, Santa's not coming back, and the presents are most likely done. But according to the traditional church calendar, we are in the Christmas season from Christmas Eve until January 6th. Those 12 days of Christmas that we sing about are happening right now. From January 6th until Ash Wednesday, when we enter Lent in preparation for Easter, we are in what the church calls Epiphany season, which is based on our story today of the Magi. The encounter between the Magi and the Christ child represents the revelation of Christ to the Gentile world, or to all people. It's a story that was huge to the people who first told it, and a story that should be big to us today. The word epiphany comes from the Greek word meaning appearance or manifestation. Epiphany season is a season in which we are char charged with finding the joyful appearances of Christ in all sorts of places, both familiar and unfamiliar. My favorite part of the story of the Magi is the bit that says when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. I can see the Magi grinning, their caravan celebrating that they had finally found that for which they had spent so much time looking. When I ask myself how I would have responded, had I been a passerby on the streets of Jerusalem, I long to think that I would have heard the caravan and its commotion, and that I would have followed them through Jerusalem and to Bethlehem to feel and know the overwhelming joy of finding the Christ child. That is our call this Epiphany season to follow the magi of our own day as they pursue the mysterious, knowing that our journey will end in joy of finding Christ, of finding God's hope, peace, joy, and love manifest in the world around us. The things that scare us, 
might be the things that, God, that make God bigger and more beautiful than we previously imagined or understood. Instead of closing our curtains when we hear and see mysterious messengers making their way through our streets, may we fling open our doors, knowing that Christ will be revealed as we learn to see through the eyes of mystics from a faraway land. Amen.